Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. We had a wonderful event last weekend, Mothers of Vision 2020 celebration event. We had really great showing. The women had some really great things to say about how things went. And I made a big announcement at the end about a leadership team that we will be launching next spring. You have to have completed the MDM Academy levels one and two, and then you are invited to join a leadership team that will enjoy a, an exclusive retreat, two to three day retreat with me and the board to get training. And you'll have the opportunity to partner with us and getting trained to mentor in our academy, to eventually speak and lead things at our events, and to also represent us at outside events and conventions, perhaps even at cottage meetings, and you can become a referral partner and get paid for promoting the Mission Driven Mom. We'd love to bring any of your ideas into our offerings. We have women, you know, just brainstorming lots of fun ideas that we can offer already. And so that leadership team, I've known for a while, probably over a year that we are going to do that next. I'm super excited to launch that and announce that. If you are an MDM Academy member and you are interested in learning more, there is a page in the Academy now called Leadership Team, and you can read up all about it. I'd love to hear your intention in the next couple of weeks, just because I've got to book a cabin retreat for us for next June. And they're filling up. So I've got to know how many beds I need for the potential number of women that might be joining us on this leadership team. I'm super excited about it. And I'm actually going to talk about um, William Wilberforce today, get to tell a mission-driven story about an unbelievable man. And this book by Eric Metaxas called Amazing Grace. There have been a lot of books that have influenced me in my life and a lot of books that I've loved. But this is one of the few that has really changed me, large, partly because of the place where I am in life and things that I needed to hear and know right now, but also just because of the kind of man that he was. And as we move forward, if you decide that the leadership team is something that you want to look into, you'll understand even more over time as I share with the leadership team things from this book and other, book, other books about why this book has changed me so much and what it means for the future of the Mission Driven Mom. And um, oh, I don't know, I'm just super, super excited about where we're headed and about the future and about the opportunity for just unlimited good that we can do as women and mothers as we link arms I did have one woman ask me specifically if you have to belong to a certain religion to join our leadership team. And of course the answer is no. We want to link arms with women of all faiths who are God fearing, who want to bring about good in the world, who want to put their own lives in order and make build principle centered homes and live the laws of life mission and do good for God with each other. So anyway, just really, really excited about that leadership team. If you're in the academy, check that out, ponder it, see if you think you can be done by about June with level two. And if it's something that you want to join us in doing and uh, you feel really kind of called to do that, 
then please reach out at info at themissiondrivenmom.com and let us know. And we will put you on the list and get you a bed for our retreat in June. So that was the announcement that, uh, that I made at the end of the event. Also, if you were not able to attend, the recordings will be available within the next few days. And so um, you can buy those. It'll be a separate product. You wouldn't go buy the event plus the recordings anymore. The recordings themselves without attending the event is $39. And so if you'll check out um, themissiondrivenmom.com, those recordings will be available to purchase in the next week or so. It's just about ready to go. And, um, and yeah, if you're in our Facebook group, the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind, then you'll see posts go up about that being available as well. And you can return to those recordings. It includes the action plan and the principles list and a mini workbook in PDF form that you can print off and use to go along with the recordings. So all of that being said, let's dive into this mission-driven story for the next few minutes and learn more about William Wilberforce. It is absolutely tragic, really so tragic to me that he is not one of the prominent figures in our world history courses in, um, in America. His name should just be shouted from the rooftops because he is, I shouldn't, I can't say single-handedly responsible because so many people helped him, but he was the moral and emotional bedrock behind the abolition of slavery and eventual emancipation, which came two days before he died, like a day and a half before he died. He heard about a complete emancipation in all of the British Isles and then passed away the next day. And so his life was completely devoted in every way possible to that mission, but he did so much good otherwise. He and his group of um, fellow Christians were responsible for forming or being a part of over 200 charitable organizations that did all kinds of good all over the world, but especially in London. But the most important thing and this is something Eric McTaxis does a great job of being clear about and delineating, is that just as important, probably, as the push for abolition and eventually emancipation was the reformation of morals that this group brought about. They really are responsible for the modern mindset that good people should help the unfortunate, that we should take care of the poor, that we should take care of the less fortunate in one way or another. Even cruelty to animals was something, was an organization formed by a man close to Wilberforce, and he had also pushed that as well. And, and so it's incalculable, the good that he brought about with alongside men like John and Henry Thornton and John Newton and, and William Pitt was a huge help early on. And there's just dozens of names, Hannah Moore and so many others who were an integral part. They wrote often, they met often. They had a Clapham Common was where they lived. Some of them for part of the time and worked together for the initial uh, ending of the slave trade. Anyway, just unbelievable how he really changed the moral framework. And one of the things I want to make really clear here is that 
um, so many of the things that we think are good things to do, like animal cruelty is a good example, or taking better care of the earth, or, you know, um, prison reform, mental hospitals. And I talked about Dorothea Dix, who worked in America and went over and helped in England as well. But it, in, in England, there was some of that thinking, helping the mentally infirm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are just dozens of causes that this group got involved in. And what's important to note is that it was driven by their Christian belief and faith and the ideas for that work and the moral justification for that work came from their study of the Bible. Modern people don't think, don't even realize there's such intimate ties back to Christian roots. But really the reason that we think those things are so important and the reason that we put time and money behind helping the poor all over the world is because of the initial founders of these ways of thinking who did it because of their belief in Jesus Christ and their belief in the importance of, of redeeming others in what other way, mentally, physically, morally, spiritually. So anyway, that's a little bit of a backdrop about the un immense importance of this man. I would encourage everybody to go out and get this book, Amazing Grace. There are lots of other biographies on him. I haven't read a lot of them. Two or three of his sons got together after his death. His daughters may have helped too, I'm not sure, and wrote an extensive, I think it's four-volume biography on him. If you're up for it, you could totally read that. We have his journals. We have lots of his letters. So we are intimately acquainted with the kind of man that he was. And based on his journals, his experiences, all of the countless um, pieces of legislation he brought forward in Parliament, the witnesses of those who knew him best, all of the evidence shows him to be immovable, unshakable in his faith, um, show him to be a man who never relented in the things that he believed in. He knew without doubt that slavery was wrong, and the more evidence came in, the more his heart ached. And just the pureness of his intentions, his incredible humility, his kindness to others, is just unquestionable. So how did he become that man? I'm not going to focus very heavily on kind of the second half of like this book and the second half of his life because all of you can read the book for yourself and all of that is documented. There's a lot of details about how first the slave trade was ended and then slavery and then emancipating current slaves and that was 40 years of his life, he dedicated himself to that work. And it brought, it was all brought about within his lifetime, which is just absolutely unbelievable. So he was born William Wilberforce on August 24th, 1759 to a prosperous merchant family in the city of Hull. They had a Jacobean mansion that was red brick and it was situated on the city's high street overlooking the Hull River. So especially his grandfather had been really brilliant in business and had become really wealthy as a merchant. So they weren't part of like the aristocracy, they weren't titled, 
but they, so they were kind of considered like less than in that regard because it was an aristocratic governmental form. And so, you know, the most important people were the aristocracy, but they were very, very wealthy. And through whole, oh, though, okay, so there were four ports in England and three of them participated in the slave trade and only one did not. And that was the one that he lived near. And we do know that he became interested in, he became kind of interested in the abolitionist cause. At about 14, he wrote an essay on it. So somehow, somewhere, he'd kind of been exposed to that and was kind of against it a little bit from a young age, but it was later on after his full conversion that his heart really changed and he really felt called to it. From the time that he was young, people talked about how intelligent he was and how articulate he was and how he had a temper that was eminently affectionate, but he always had a weak constitution. He was sick on and off all his life. Um, he had something that we think is ulciferd colitis or something like that. I'd have to go look at the exact words. Um, but he had digestive issues all his life. He took a mild um, prescription of um, drugs. What is the drug that he took? I'll tell you in a minute when I remember. But um, he had a weak constitution, poor eyesight. He was only five foot three. And when he was the sickest, he was 75 pounds. I'm sure he normally weighed a little over 100 pounds. But he was very small and very sickly and weak a lot of his life. But he seemed to be pretty attractive. And his demeanor all his life was like, he was, he was, people just always expressed a joy at being around him. He had this gorgeous singing and speaking voice that everyone loved to listen to. He was really, really funny and clever. And so he always made people smile and laugh. And he was always really kind and considered a pretty moral man. Now, when he was 12, I think it was, his father died and his mother got sick. And so he was sent to live with an uncle. Now, let me tell you really quickly, just before that, if you've ever heard of Joseph Milner or his brother Isaac, they actually were, Isaac was a teacher in his school when he was young, when he was just getting started out, and he had a huge impact on, on Wilberforce. But also, even when he was young, he was known to be a great singer and speaker, and it said Milner proudly recalled that when he was in school, quote, his elocution was so remarkable that we used to set him upon a table and make him read aloud as an example to the other boys. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's kind of how he was as, as a young boy. And then when he was 12, he was, had to go live with his uncle and aunt in Wimbledon. Now, the thing that's amazing about these people, this is John Thornton. And he was basically, he was one of the wealthiest men in England. He ran the Bank of England, basically. And he had had this incredible conversion to Christianity. Now, back then, kind of the most, I don't know if you'd call them extreme, but this is when the Methodists kind of came into being. 
and they were really intense in their devotion and really devout. And for some reason, people just thought it, it was from the word method. They were Methodists because they made comments about their method. I don't know exactly why that came to be the nickname, but this aunt and uncle didn't have children of their own and they loved him like a son. And he was very, very comfortable there. Now you should know, actually, I didn't say this. His parents <laughs> were, I mean, in today's kind of, I don't know, language of the time, they maybe would be considered like Anglican. In other words, they professed Christian, to be Christians, kind of Christian belief, but they didn't really live their religion. They thought it was extreme and embarrassing to be like a Methodist and to be really converted and to like keep the Sabbath and stuff like that. And they, they would have been mortified if they would have realized that the Thorntons were Methodists and that they taught uh, Wilberforce everything they knew about religion. And it totally, he was totally converted, like deeply converted. And he came to love them like his parents. In fact, they were close friends with George Whitefield, who was the really famous preacher of the time that was responsible for the kind of the great awakening that's called. He preached all over England, then he went to America and preached all over America, this new way of seeing God as, as a loving being who wants us to worship him out of love and blah, blah, blah. And he had a lot of success. And they were close friends with him. So this had a huge impact on him. And after a couple of years, his mom is feeling better. And she gets wind of, I'm not exactly sure how she finds out that he's been converted to Methodism. And she freaks out and brings him home. And he's heartbroken. Like he writes this really sweet letter back to them and says, it all just almost broke my heart to have to leave you. And so he's about 14 when he goes back home. I should also mention that they were friends with John Newton, who was the one that wrote Amazing Grace, the Thorntons were, and Wilberforce knew him as a boy, knew him all his life. They were close. And Newton is the one that was a slave ship captain and dramatically converted. If you've seen the movie, it's not really like that. He had been converted like, 20 or 30 years before and he was a preacher and was respected and loved. And so he had an influence on Wilberforce and his family. In fact, his family was so against Methodism that uh, his grandpa said this, if Billy turns Methodist, he shall not have a sixpence of mine. So the grandpa was still alive when this was happening, that the dad had passed away and so he was going to be completely financially cut off if he stayed converted. Well, he went home. He was really deeply unhappy. And he, his parents wouldn't let him. His mom wouldn't let him go to church. And his grandpa was kind of filled the father role at that time. And it was just heartbreaking for him. And he was just surrounded by people who didn't believe that way. And it was really, really rough for him. And so he kept praying, he kept reading his scriptures, he kept trying to sustain his conversion. And after about three years, you know, the people around him, even his sister were like just embarrassed by his, his stalwartness and faithfulness. And they kept trying to convince him to just relax and have fun and stop making a big deal of it. 
and he kind of gives it up and they send him off to college and he gets in with this awful set of he's at Cambridge and he's with this awful set of guys that just drink all the time and go to the brothels and all the things that they do. They were just scoundrels. They didn't study. They were just the elite. and They were there because that's the school that you went to. And he didn't stay in their company. It wasn't his nature to be, to live such a dissolute lifestyle, but he also had a tendency to kind of slack. And he said all his life that he struggled with self-discipline, which is kind of amazing because he worked his tail off all his life. <laughs> really, really, really. But he, he, he always attributed his weakness to the wasted years at Pocklington and Cambridge. So he didn't study there much, but when it came time to his senior project, it was put off for a couple years. I can't remember the details, but he was asked to write on something that he didn't feel ethically good about. And so he had to work that out before he could actually graduate. And I guess he did get his schoolwork done, but he was just, um, wasn't serious at all. So he finishes, he graduates, and he just kind of goes back into wealthy life. Like, I'm sure maybe he helped kind of oversee some things in business and stuff, but not much. Like, he was just really, and everybody seems to have said this about him, he says, he was extraordinarily charming from earliest childhood to the end of his life. He captivated others with his mind and with his singular voice. He was brilliantly witty, indefatigably effervescent and brightly cheerful, not to mention generous. And he used to go every night to like the bars or whatever and sing with his friends and talk with his friends and just have a good old time. He was a very wealthy young man. He was just enjoying life having a good time. He always collected a lot of friends around him. People just loved being around him. He never was one to really look at the details of his finances and things like that. It wasn't really in his temper. But he loved to have a good time. And he goes along like this for several years. From the time he's 17 to about... Uh, I think his conversion is at 25 or 26, something like that. So he, he and his friend, William Pitt, William Pitt gets him really interested in politics during their time together. They become friends of the same age. And William Pitt was the youngest prime minister ever appointed. He was 24 years old. <laughs> These guys went into politics right out of college. And his father had been prime minister, and I guess it was kind of like the passing of the baton kind of thing. And so he had been born and raised on it and prepared to do that. He had always seen that as, that as his calling. In fact, Pitt never even married. Um, he just devoted himself to politics. He didn't have the religious conversion that Wilberforce did, and they had a few run-ins uh, in their relationship when Wilberforce felt like he needed to act according to conscience, and it put Pitt in a bad light, but they were lifelong friends. Pitt died much younger than Wilberforce, even though Wilberforce was the sickly one. But so he got him really interested in politics. So Wilberforce decided that he was going to <laughs> become, he was going, basically back then, you just bought the seat. You just paid everybody off. 
And so if you had money, you could get an office. And so the parliament was made up entirely of really wealthy people and, and aristocrats who could buy their position. And so there was this certain um, position in one of the counties that was considered especially reputable. So he decided he was going to run for office in that county. And he did it. He had this humongous ox roast, ox roast and invited people from all over and basically paid everybody off and won the seat, won him over with his wit and, and um, you know, thoughts and entertaining way of being. So he wins this seat in Parliament. So he and Pitt are young. They're now in Parliament. They're enjoying themselves there. Um, they enjoyed their wealth and privilege to the fullest. <laughs> one guy said of him, I thank God that I live in the age of Wilberforce and that I know one man at least who is both moral and entertaining. That's kind of how people saw him. He didn't go out and get in a lot of trouble. He was just a whole lot of fun. But it was all just about having fun. Like he cared about good things and I'm sure he tried to pass decent stuff in the legislature, but it wasn't until a few years, uh, a couple of years later, his mom was really sick. And so they were going to go like to the French Riviera or something that was just a long, long way away by carriage. And so he decided to invite a friend along. I think it was Isaac Milner that he invited to ride with him on this several weeks or month or so journey. And so they're travel. So his mom and his sister are in one carriage and their stuff is in this other carriage. And then he and Milner are in a carriage and they just get on the topic of religion. And Milner is a guy who kind of lives a pretty normal lifestyle. He's a professor. He's really, really brilliant. He's like one of the smartest guys in England, but he's deeply devoted to, to Christianity. And so they get talking about this and they decide they let me see where this this book is called the rise and progress of religion in the soul by philip doddridge so milner gets wilberforce thinking about things that he hadn't really thought about before and questions that he'd had that he never really got answered and so there's this book where they are sitting on this shelf and they borrow it or whatever he asks Milner about it, and Milner says, it's one of the best books ever written. Let us take it with us and read it on our journey. So they had already gone there. I think this was like on the way back or something like that, after having been together for a few months, because they went like for the summer or something. And so they read it together and talked all about it. And when they got home, Wilberforce spent close to a year just thinking and pondering everything that they had talked about, thinking about himself and about what he had learned and the questions that he had answered. One of the things that Metaxas says about him is he knew if he discovered a truth to his satisfaction, he would have no choice but to embrace it and act upon it. He talks about how there are many instances, even before he was had this huge conversion, where his intellectual honesty was was very um, grounded and he would not embrace an idea unless he truly believed in it. And once he knew something to be true, he wouldn't flinch on it. So he is wholeheartedly converted. He believes that Christ is his savior, that the Bible is the word of God. And 
um, and he doesn't know what to do next. <laughs> um, he began three or four days to get, he says, began three or four days ago to get up very early in the solitude and self-conversation of the morning had thoughts which I trust will come to something. As soon as I reflected seriously upon these subjects, the deep guilt and black ingratitude of my past life forced itself upon me in the strongest colors, and I condemned myself for having wasted my precious time and opportunities and talents. So actually, he says, what madness is the course I am pursuing? I believe all the great truths of the Christian religion, but I am not acting as though I did. Should I die in this state, I must go into the place of misery. He saw that he had turned his back on God, but oddly didn't know how to turn around. Later he said, yet, yet I may become religious. Has God not promised his Holy Spirit to them that ask him? So he falls into this really deep depression because he doesn't really know what to do. He doesn't know how to stand up for what he believes in the face of all the people around. I mean, he doesn't have any close friends at this point who are truly converted Christians who are really trying to live out their convictions. He doesn't really know what to do with, with this newfound faith. He despairs over his selfishness um, and spending all of his time and money on himself. And in fact, he comes to this point where he, it's really, I, I just, I, oh, I just love it so much because he, he realizes that if Christianity is true, if he really has been saved and he really is here on earth to fulfill some kind of mission, that he can, that his time and his talents and his money are not his own. He realizes they're a stewardship from God and he's got to figure out how God wants him to use them. So it's just this really beautiful experience. So finally he gets up this, the conversion. Yeah. Metaxas said, it's telling to think that among the hundreds of people Wilberforce knew there wasn't a single Methodist friend to be found. Now he knew people like, John Thornton a little bit, and he knew John Newton from childhood, but he never spent any time with them. So Pitt is his very closest friend in the world. So he writes a letter to Pitt and he's like, man, I just don't know what to think. I don't know what to do. And Pitt's really sweet and gracious. He never has that same kind of conversion. He never sought it out. He never really tried to find out for himself, but he writes back and he's really sweet. And he's like, you know what? this is awesome for you. I'm happy for you. You need to not be so hard on yourself. And what the real big burning question in Wilberforce's mind at this point is, do I stay in parliament? Like he's thinking, I've got to just go like, I don't know, live in a monastery or something or become a preacher or something. Like, I don't, I don't know how to live this out. So Pitt addresses that concern right off the bat and says, I think you should stay in parliament and just do good there. Like what better place? You have so much power and influence there. So finally he decides that the only way to move forward is to like confess, which I think is so fascinating. God always leads us there. When we really want to turn a corner and we really want to be different, we really want to change our lives. Confession is so cleansing and helps us just put it behind us when another human knows and we don't feel like we're keeping secrets from anyone. So he decides John Newton is the person that he needs to confess to. 
So he writes him a letter. He's so heavy hearted. He doesn't know how to face him. Writes him this letter and says, can I come see you? And Newton's really busy, doesn't really realize what it's about. So he puts him off for a few days. But finally, Wilberforce goes to see him and just kind of confesses everything. And Newton is just so delighted, so joyful, and of course, so supportive. And he says as well, yes, you should continue in Parliament, do good where you are. And so he determines to do that. And he starts living differently where he is. Much to the chagrin of his mother, I'm not sure about his sister. She kind of eventually got her mind around it and I think had kind of her own conversion. She married a really strong Methodist friend of Wilberforce's later on, but um, he, won't, he won't engage in certain behaviors anymore that other people around him are doing. And he wants to keep Sabbath, Sundays, really as holy as he can. So he wants to use it for a day of reflection and doing calming things and connecting with God. Uh, he goes to church. Oh, he, this is what he said about his meeting with Newton. When I came away, I found my mind in a calm, tranquil state, more humbled and looking more devoutly up to God. So that's really beautiful. So then he starts spending his Sabbaths in a really beautiful way. He says, Good Friday, April 14th. He takes communion for the first time. Two days later, on his first Easter Sunday as a true Christian, he does so again while visiting the Unwins in the village of the St. Franz of Stock in Essex. I scarce recollect, this is what he wrote in his journal, oh, wrote, wrote, wrote to his sister Sally, I scarce recollect to have spent so pleasant a day as that which is nearly over. I was out before six, made the fields my oratory, the sun shining as bright and warm as at midsummer. I think my own devotions became more fervent when offered in this way amidst the general chorus. Um, surely this Sabbath of all others calls forth these feelings of a, in a supreme degree, a frame of united love and triumph well becomes it and holy confidence and unrestrained affection. Wrote in his journal, day delightful, communicated, very happy. So here he's in a, he's, he's the same man in the same public position, but he's completely changed. To live for God as he now longed to do was a foreign and, train, and, and strange proposition and would take time to sort out. He understood that these stewardships that he had of time, talent, and money were God's to use through him, so he had to figure out how he was supposed to use them. And eventually, um, he comes to, well, let me tell you something else first. Um... he starts to try to figure out what he's supposed to do next. And almost at first he re, kind of repents, kind of just gets everything off of his chest. Then he starts trying to better live those commandments, which he already knows, right? Like not engaging in certain behaviors that he feels are inappropriate. He has an increase of like God's presence with him. He feels like an increase of spirit, spiritual strength. And he's listening better to that and to his conscience, and he's being guided on this spiritual path. He's getting up earlier. He's reading scripture every day again and praying, and he receives more and more revelation as he does this. So then he says, um, 
he began, he resolved to begin immediately regarding his own personal improvement. So he decided, I've just got to be a better man. And I wasted my time in college. And so I've got to make up for that time of frittered years and opportunities. He said, books to be read, he writes in his diary, Locke's essay, Marshall's logic, Indian reports. This resolve to read was no flippant New Year's resolution. For the next 12 summers until his marriage, he would spend one or two months at some country home assiduously studying nine or 10 hours alone each day. <laughs> so you want to talk about law four, learning from the greats, loving learning, when that spark of spirit comes. So you can see he returns to God he instantly starts living a more principled life in, on, his, on his own, puts, puts his own house in order, starts to really educate himself, and starts to ask God, what's next for me? What call do you have for me? And so after some time, I'm actually not really sure how long it took. Um, well, let me tell you this first. And this goes along with those other laws, especially with law two of self-discipline. So he's really trying to work on law for and educate himself in the greats and really understand the world and worldviews and world religions. And that really makes him able. I mean, by the time he dies, he knows everybody. He knows kings and queens. He knows Lafayette. He knows uh, famous poets and authors. He knows Thomas Jefferson. He's met Benjamin Franklin. He just, he, he knows everybody. <laughs> and he's just totally, really world famous. But he has to get his own house in order. He's got to live laws two and three. This is what uh, the author says. Wilberforce had been fatherless and had been encouraged by his friends and his mother and even by his tutors to do exactly as he pleased. So where Pitt was now reaping the ample rewards of all his years of paternal sternness, because Pitt's dad had really created a lot of self-discipline in him, Wilberforce was an undisciplined mess who had gotten where he was precisely and only because of the raw talent that he possessed, but never cultivated one wit. For the rest of his life, he would pay a price for those idle years. As brilliant as was his oratory, it was often criticized for being too extemporaneous, too unshaped in his arguments. All of this was shown to him now in these months. He saw, so to speak, the full horror of himself. God in his mercy had allowed Wilberforce to see himself as he truly was, and it was crushing. But Wilberforce knew God didn't mean to end there. On the other side of the worst of who he was, if he dared face that worst, was a God who would help him overcome his faults and do great things, the very things for which he had created him. It was not too late. Isn't that beautiful? So this kind of reminds me of John, is it 14 or 15? And it says that those who come to God um, will be pruned so that they can bring forth more fruit. So I just want to say to anyone listening or relating to anything that I was saying here, when we, when we give our will over God, which is something I talk about in the book, you know, that first, and we talk about the academy a lot, turning your will over to God and being a willing uh, servant willing to look at yourself honestly and change yourself. When you do that, God's going to show you some things you need to fix and just don't let it overwhelm you and discourage you and totally like get you off the wrong, off the right path. That is the case so that you can change those things. That's what laws two and three are all about, right? Like you're getting your own personal self in order. You're, 
And, and you can see already better self-care. He's sleeping longer. He's getting up earlier. He's not, I don't know if he drank at all, but very mildly if he did. He's just, and he's sickly, but he's taking better care of himself. I just remembered it's opium that he took. It, it wasn't, it was in small doses. He never increased his doses, but that was the only way he could manage some of his illness at the time. Anyway, totally, sorry. Just remembered, top topic. But point being, you know, that self-management, he's got to gain a lot of self-discipline and self-discovery. He knows what some of his talents are. He's going to discover more talents. And then, of course, living a more principled life, that's what he's doing as well. So he's studying, he's learning what those principles are, and he's trying to live in harmony with them. So really, 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 really awesome how, you know, he just kind of, he's a good man in, in some ways. You know, it's not like he was out doing really evil things, but he just wasn't who he could have been without God and without turning his will over and without seeking out that revelation and that clarity about what he, what he was to do next. So time goes by, I'm thinking it's a year or two. Um, this is 1787 and he has his conversion. Uh, that was in 86. So it's over a year, maybe a year and a half. And it was a year kind of leading up to that true full conversion. So he's kind of been on this path two or three years now. And he's getting up, he's studying scripture, he's changed his behavior to be more principle-centered, he's trying to educate himself and gain more discipline, he's trying to live all those laws. And he's asking God specifically, okay, I'm. this is where I am, I have, I know I know I bet my best friend's the prime minister. Like I have some really important friends in high places. I have all kinds of wealth. I can come and go as I please. What do you want me to do? And he writes this in his journal, these 12 famous, these 10 famous words. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. And that reformation of manners means up-leveling the character of the British people and making them a more moral people, like I was mentioning at the beginning, that they are more devoted to bringing about good causes, that they see that they can't just sit in their comfortable homes or just live their you know, pious lives and redeem themselves, that they have to help mankind you know, that they've been commanded to love their brothers and sisters, that if you want to do good to Christ, you must do good to all your brothers and sisters on earth. That is how you show him that you love him. And he took that to heart and he knew specifically, these are the things that God's planted in my heart that are my job to work on. And he got to work. Uh, Henry Thornton was one of his became a really close friend. It was John Thornton's son. John Thornton was the one that was really wealthy around the Bank of England and lived in Clapham. And Henry built two wings onto his property, onto his home. And it was like almost 40 bedrooms at that point. And then he built a handful of other homes on what was called Clapham Common. And people moved into the village. It was about four miles outside of London. And for the next dozen years or so, even after he married, uh, he lived in London or and Clapham, he would, he would travel in the summers and things like that for his health. But he spent a lot of time in more and more awesome, amazing 
converted individuals came into these circles. And I, I could just tell you all kinds of amazing stories about uh, the men and women that were drawn to this group and the incalculable good that they did. Like I said, they first abolished the slave trade, then they abolished slavery, then they emancipated all the existing slaves in the West Indies. And so they also, they were also the East India Company was uh, just treating the Indians in India just awfully. And so he petitioned against all of that and helped um, them, helped get missionaries there. He helped establish Freetown in Sierra Leone, which was an attempt to let previous slaves run their own town, run their own city on their own helped fund that, just did so much good. And um, prison reform was a huge one, helping the mentally ill, helping the poor all over the place. They just combined as a group and, and made it fashionable to do good. It was not fashionable when, when Wilberforce came on the scene to, to do philanthropy and charitable acts. And it's, I mean, even among people who are very godless in today's world, They'll go, you know, I mean, you've seen actors and actresses do this all the time. They'll go over to Africa and they'll give money and they'll, you know, work and serve and all that kind of stuff. And they don't even recognize that the reason that that's cool to do, that people think that's awesome, because it's fundamentally so humane. It's fundamentally a godlike thing to do. And it came from, originated with God-fearing Christians who were deeply devoted to their faith. Um, Hannah Moore was a really famous author. In fact, during her lifetime, her books outsold Jane Austen's many times over. And um, she had a deep conversion and she became close to Wilberforce and worked with him. Uh, there were a handful of other women that were part of this group. Um, I can't remember their names and I can't find it right now, but it was the wife of one of these men that was converted, helped convert her husband. And she uh, worked, kind of pushed others into helping with abolishing slave trade and all this kind of thing. But Wilberforce, he had this incredible humility all his life. Like people would be like, oh, you know, you're founded on the rock. And he's like, I hope so. And they're like, you're doing such great things. Be like, oh, I hope so. And even near the end of his life, he writes in his journal about how grieved he is of all the sins of omission and all the ways that he knows he's fallen short, even though he's devoted his life and given everything, given the last measure. In fact, he died almost broke because of all the money he gave away in his lifetime and then helped his son in business at the very end so that he didn't even have a home of his own. He lived with his children until he died. But I want to tell you one quick story that was one of my favorites about him. He was always very gracious, very generous, very kind in the way that he spoke about others. He didn't call him out. He didn't, you know, kind of call him on the carpet by name. He didn't try to make them look bad or embarrass them. He just really tried to get everybody unified. There's a really incredible place in the book that it shows when the slave trade finally passed. It was this beautiful, victorious moment. They spoke all night taking turns and just applauded him like crazy. And 
just a really beautiful moment in his life. And so there were lots and lots of highs and lows, but it's so, you know, it's so amazing. I'm going to tell you this really quick before I tell you this last story. He taught, he, he has this incredible analogy where he talks about watching one of his grandchildren be vaccinated. And at first, you know, they're happy. And then, you know, it says the infant gave up, this is what he wrote in his journal, the infant gave up its little arm to the operator without suspicion or fear. But when it felt the puncture, which must have been sharp, no words can express the astonishment and grief that followed. I could not have thought the mouth could have been distented so widely as it continued till the nurse's soothing restored her usual calmness. And so he gives us this visual of this poor little baby getting a vaccination that was so painful for it. And then like he always did, he was an avid missionary, always trying to find opportunities to share his faith and, can, and help convert people. But he, he gives this beautiful analogy. This is in the last few months of his life. He wrote this in his journal. What an illustration is this of the impatient feelings we are often apt to experience and sometimes even to express when suffering from the dispensations of a being, our God, whose wisdom we profess to believe to be unerring, whose kindness we know to be unfailing, whose truth also is sure, and who has declared to us that all things shall work together for good to them that love him and that the object of his inflictions is to make us partakers of his holiness. So after everything he'd been through, all the deaths, all the tragedies, he had two of his loved, beautiful daughters die when they were just young, younger, and the, the you know he'd lost basically all of his wealth in his lifetime. And he goes on to talk about how his perpetual gratitude in all circumstances actually seemed to increase as he approached death and became more ill. And this analogy that God loves us so much that just like a wise parent intentionally inflicts pain on their child in order to help them avoid greater pain, so a loving God inflicts pain on us to help us to become everything we could become. She's just absolutely beautiful. So I want to just tell you really quickly as we finish up this awesome story about Cheddar Gorge. And Metaxas sells, tells it so wonderfully. I'm going to just read some of what he says. But Wilberforce had been sick again. He had gone to Cowslip Green to visit Hannah and her sisters with his sister Sally. Hannah's sister Martha, knowing Wilberforce loved natural scenery, insisted that he take a trip to the nearby Cheddar Gorge, which offered some of the finest scenery in England. Cheddar Gorge is the largest gorge in the United Kingdom and the site of many caves. But during his visit, Wilberforce was less moved by the scenery than by the inhabitants of the area whose poverty was extreme and to Wilberforce, shocking. They had no school at all, nor any church. Some of the miserable souls did not even live in hovels, but scratched out an existence in the caves themselves. So here he is, ill, trying to gain some respite from his own responsibilities and struggles and difficulties. And he goes here and he just sees all this poverty. On his return to the Moors' home, Wilberforce was clearly of a mind to be alone with his thoughts on what he had just witnessed. He retired to his room to pray, did not touch his food, and later emerged with a clear purpose. Miss Hannah Moore, he said, something must be done for Cheddar. 
They discussed various schemes until the hour grew late. At last, Wilberforce declared, if you will be at the trouble, I will be at the expense. And he meant it. Whatever they could do to help the poor there, he would fund it. Wilberforce insisted that Hannah not be shy in asking for his money. To do so, he said, would only be pride disguised as false humility. For over his lifetime, Wilberforce gave away more money than we can imagine. And he now wrote the first of many generous checks to launch the Moore's work among the poor of that area. Hannah Moore soon started the first schools in the area and Wilberforce would continue to fund them for many years. So if that doesn't give you a sense of the kind of man that he was, I don't know what. Uh, I just have grown to love him so much. I already loved the movie and I've wanted to read this book for quite a long time, but it was just the right book at the right time for me and taught me some deeper lessons about what I need to do, where I need to move forward and what we as women and mother in the mission driven mom can become and accomplish together which is just a, an even bigger vision. Um, so much good can be done and needs to be done. And I hope you'll join me on that journey. If you, by the way, <laughs> feel interested in the leadership team, but are just getting started in the academy or haven't joined yet, the leadership team will continue to exist. And when you feel ready, we will be there for you to get involved with us. But in the meantime, I hope you will continue on this path of discovering principles. This book, uh, Amazing Grace, talks about principles often. Wilberforce wrote about them often in his journal, understood the importance of being founded on the rocks of, the, of God and his natural laws and principles. And we can follow his example, live those foundational laws, and then see what work God has for us to do and trust that he'll make up the difference if we take our first steps toward that mission. So thank you so much for joining me. We will be um, closing up the option to get the audio book of The Mission Driven Life at themissiondrivenmom.com here pretty quickly. We're going to launch our new website. I'll let you know when that's ready. I'm super excited about it. Um, much better. There'll be a store, which is not a store now. Anyway, it's going to be great. So really excited. Um, I'll let you know when that's ready to go. But thank you for joining me today to hear about a truly, truly mission-driven man. And of course, his wife had had her own conversion and was every bit as mission-driven as him. They had six beautiful children, and she was completely devoted to him and his work, willing to sacrifice, willing to, you know, <laughs> she was right there giving the money away with him right there supporting him physically and emotionally through all of the hard work to abolish slavery and believe just as passionately in it. So also an incredible woman in her own right. Anyway, have a marvelous day and I will see you next time.